Ladies and gentlemen, um, I'm Sarah Worthington, pro-director here at the LSE, and it's my great pleasure tonight to introduce this lecture. It's an inaugural lecture, so a big and important lecture, given by Professor Sadi Lalu, who is the director of the LSE's Institute of Social Psychology. The title of his lecture, as you all know, is How to Control and Change Individual Behaviour. Clearly, it's captured your imagination, which is, I think, the first rule of all inaugurals. We all want to know how to do it, and we hope that in the next hour we'll have that revealed to us. But before I say anything about Saadi and his lecture, I want to say something about psychology and social science and this program of public lectures, because this isn't the only lecture in the series. Saadi and his institute are hosting a series of lectures on the relations between psychology and the social sciences. As we chatted before this lecture, he reminded me that the Pro Directors Fund had supported this series. But then, we like to back good ideas, and this certainly seemed like a good idea. What he wants to do is draw attention to the potential and to the necessity of integrating psychology into the larger intellectual program of the social sciences. Indeed, when he was describing the discipline that he works in, he said it's societal psychology. And certainly that seemed something that was worth exposing to an audience here in the public lectures at the LSE. What he's going to do in this series is bring together psychologists, philosophers, in fact, social scientists from every discipline and look at the various contributions that psychology has made to the different areas of social science. He also wants to try and look back and forwards at societal psychology at the LSE because from the middle of the 20th century onwards, it's, had a, it's been pressed forward with a particular vision here and I think he wants to reinvigorate that. But moving from the general to the particular and tonight's lecture. In a nutshell, the argument, and I'm not going to give the lecture, but I just want to give a little hint of what it's about. The argument is that humans are by nature designed to operate in groups. Groups determine individual behavior and modern societies have developed a distributed and efficient network to do so, based on objects and institutions and representations. So what Saudi wants to do in this lecture is to explore these mechanisms with the goal of fostering a more sustainable behavior amongst humans. Interestingly, he won't confine himself just to the theory, but will also consider various applications. Anyway, I won't say more, the expert's with us. So, who is this expert? Professor Saadi Lalu joined the LSE in January this year. He'd first trained as a statistician and an economist in Paris. Doesn't sound like he's going to give us the kind of lecture you were expecting, does it? But after that, he studied human biology and did his PhD in social psychology, still in Paris at one of the Grande Coles. With his PhD in hand, he conducted research in social psychology and cognitive science at a number of institutions in Paris, 
and this probably explains where he comes from in his lecture, he also managed a full-time job in industry. Indeed, just before he joined the LSE, he was the strategic advisor to the director of EDF's research and development operations. So he had quite a lot of material to work on. What he did over a number of years in his own research was develop new investigation techniques using statistical text mining. I'm saying that as if I know what it is. I don't know what it is. Uh, video and participative design. And he's done research on all sorts of issues, from suicide to eating behavior. You always have to get a book plug in in, in these events. And he does have a book coming out this week. Uh, it's an edited collection entitled Human-Friendly Augmented Work Environments. But without more, I'll hand up over to the main person in this show, Sadi. He's going to speak for about an hour, and then we'll have time for questions. I hope you enjoy. Good evening. Sandra, thank you for organizing this. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, Professor Worthington, for chairing. And I also feel honored that some colleagues flew in from far away tonight. It's a great pleasure for me to open this series of conference this year. And I'm delighted of the opportunity to talk about social psychology and societal psychology. I hope that we will have some interesting discussion and uh, I must apologize that um, I do not have any introducing joke. Um, so, uh, but I, I have a warning though, and uh, this warning is as follows. Um, my presentation will contain description of experiments where animals or humans are submitted to stress. Um, I will show images extracted from historical archives describing acts of barbarism. These might be shocking, so please be warned. Unfortunately, the illustrations presented um, are not fictional. My outline is as follows. First, I will remind you why we need to address the issue of behavioral change. I will then illustrate the social nature of humans as inbuilt in their physiology and psychology and what implications this has for individual and group behavior. I will then address the practical issue of behavioral change based on world installation theory which, which describes how societies today elicit and control human behavior. I will show how we can use this model to create social change. In 1972, the Club of Rome commissioned a report entitled Limits to Growth. The report presented results of simulations based on a set of real data to explore how growth interacts with finite resources. Three scenarios were investigated. The first, standard run, considered business as usual with continuation of current trends. The second, comprehensive technology, assumed technology would solve a series of resources bottlenecks. The third evaluated what would happen if we managed to stabilize the world, that is, stop growth by some magical operation. Many experts dismissed its conclusions as too pessimistic. Unpleasant predictions are often dismissed when they come with no easy solution. Let me remind you why the conclusions of this report were so inconvenient. 
Scenario one predicted a global collapse of our system around 2035 to 2045. The comprehensive technology scenario, which was more optimistic, uh, predicted collapse around 2075. The last scenario was nicer, but unrealistic anyway. It's now 37 years since this report was issued, so we can now compare the projections with reality on this past period and independent expert groups using public and official data have done it. The somewhat unpleasant conclusion is that the actual data fit the first scenario business as usual. Here's the graph with the purple dots showing the actual statistics. The green curve is business as usual. The red is comprehensive technology. These are the data for pollution. These are the data for food per capita. And this is industrial output. I think we have enough evidence on which trajectory we have. We're on, I'm sorry. None of the optimistic scenarios seem to be on track. If we want to avoid collapse or at least limit its impact, we cannot anymore rely on the next generation to do so. We have to cope with it ourselves. The takeaway is that the world will, with a high probability, face severe stress based on lack of resources, overpopulation, and massive pollution between 2035 to 2070. This introduction was set to show that the question, how can we change human behavior, is not purely rhetoric. We need to find operational solutions soon. So severe stress ahead. What can be the consequences on society? Let me describe an experiment by Henri Laborit. I apologize for the unpleasant treatment that was given to rats here. At the time, ethics committees were less influent. A rat is placed in a cage, separated into two compartments by a partition with a door. A signal occurs, then four seconds later, an electric shock is sent into the floor of the compartment. If the rat leaves the compartment, he finds a similar situation in the other compartment. In condition one, the door is open. The rat keeps running from one compartment to, another, to the other to escape electric shock. The rat is submitted to this treatment for 10 minutes a day for eight consecutive days. After this, on examination, its biological status is excellent. In condition two, the rat cannot flee while it gets the shocks. Um, on the eighth day, laboratory tests reveal massive weight loss, hypertension that persists for several weeks after experiment, multiple ulcerative lesions on the stomach. In condition three, two rats are placed in the same compartment, but the communication door remains closed. They do get the electric shock without being able to escape. Soon they are biting, fighting, and scratching each other as soon as the signal comes. After eight days of this treatment, their biological status and evaluation, apart from bites and scratches, is excellent. What we learn here is what follows. The natural reactions to stress is fight or flight. In such case, the animal copes and does not develop organic disorders. Flight or fight is indeed what humans, who are also animals, also tend to do in stressful situations if given, if given the opportunity. Humans on this planet will soon be submitted to severe stress because of scarce resources and degradation of their local environment. Already quite a few have already started to flee, migrating for their, from their current stressful environments to cities or other richer countries. But the option of fleeing to another planet vanished from the near future. 
Well, with the end of the Apollo space program in 1972, ironically the same year Limits to Growth report was published. Our planet may soon appear as a single global cage with many animals, similar to condition three of the laborate experiment where subjects start fighting. Can we redesign the world to avoid future fighting? Jared Diamond studied in great detail previous natural experiments of such situations where civilizations have overdrawn their local resources. Easter Island has today no tree while it used to be well populated and covered with the largest forest in the Pacific with a species of palm trees that was six feet in diameter. Vanished Amerindian civilizations and many others show similar scenarios of conflicts and collapse. The recent conflicts in Rwanda, which have sometimes been simplistically described as tribal wars between Tutsis and Hutus, are in fact based on a conflict for scarce agricultural resources in what is the most densely populated area of Africa. The coming decades should see a growing number of wars around vital resources, especially water. Collapse is not inevitable. Diamond's example of the contrasted faith of two parts of the same island in the Caribbean demonstrate that some ways of organizing can produce better effects than others. Social science can be useful in understanding why and how and help us find better ways of organizing. The current system based on growth is not sustainable and will bring conflicts. There are two issues here. First, social identity, which is a social construct, contributes strongly to determine attitudes and behavior. Social identity is prone to conflicts because humans tend then to think in terms of us and them. They attribute the problems to the other and fight instead of addressing the economic and environmental problems. The second issue is about the difficulty in changing behavior called the awareness action gap. Individuals are aware of the problem, but they do not act. They don't shut the lights off, they let the water run from the tap, they do not recycle, etc. They stubbornly refuse to act like rational agents. Instead, they act like human beings and threaten their behavior, a messy set of psychological variables. It is our job as psychologists to deal with these psychological variables, which are a pain for economists and policymakers. I will address the social identity issue in part two, homo socius, and the behavior issue in part three, the world as installation. Let me start with the issue of social identity. My argument here will be that humans are social by nature. They live in colonies. Their very physiology makes them flesh for groups. They love being in groups, and their efficiency is leveraged in groups. Groups are as old as mankind. They tend to emerge spontaneously as soon as a set of humans are put in a situation together. In groups, individuals then tend to behave as organs of the group, alienated to the group. Groups create borders, like the US-Mexico border in this picture. Groups tend to discriminate other groups, which is a cause of conflicts, escalation, and waste. Therefore, we need new types of organization, governance, and agency which use the positive aspects of groups, for example, their amazing capacity to change individual behavior, but we want to avoid the bad aspects of groups. These social design issues are part of societal psychology's research program. Humans are social by nature. Primates are social animals, and humans who are primates lived in groups long before they even started using tools. It's fair to say that homo is a homo socius before it is, it is a homo sapiens. 
The areas of the brain which deal with emotions, including social emotions, are older in phylogenesis. These older structures are nevertheless still massively involved in decision-making, and we should not be surprised that mathematical rationality accounts for only one layer. And of course, we enjoy being in groups. That is our natural environment. The development of human groups as local ecosystemic niches for a human life goes with gradual self-domestication of humans into a species which fully depends upon society for its own individual development. What we consider a human is the result of education. The sad cases of so-called feral children who managed to survive in infancy outside of human education show that language and even bipedal walk do not occur without education. Note these cases are questions, question which shows how hard it is for us to believe that a child could even survive without the group. In fact, not only humans are social animals, but it can be argued that they have become some kind of colonial species, like ants or bees. Homo socius colonies are now covering this planet. In fact, over 50% of the human population is currently living in urban environments. These colonies are expanding into cyberspace. One could joke that a new species, Homo virtualis, is appearing, which constructs cities in virtual worlds such as Second Life. And then maybe Homo Facebookus, a species mostly constituted, constituted beautiful and young and sexy individuals, um, would be a, transition, a transitional link, as they say. Well, however interesting these virtual new species, I will let them aside for the moment. I announced sociality is based in physiology. Here are some examples. The white of the eyes, an anatomic part called sclerotica, is oversized in humans compared to other animals, including primates. This enables us to see, even from far away, where others gaze and to facilitate eye contact. Humans have a very developed system specifically designed to signal emotions to other socios. Seventeen pairs of muscles are dedicated to facial expression. Although many mimics acquire signification through culture, most are universals, as Abel Ebersfeld demonstrated. Marie-Joseph Chalamel and myself, by filming human newborns aged from three to eight to ten days, actually, have shown in 1984 that humans possess at birth a complete emotional repertoire of well-formed human mimics, most of which are a complex dynamic combination of several facial muscles. Humans exhibit an amazing capacity to synchronize with other socios, as is visible when observing people who know well each other as they walk, or as they walk together, or when analyzing coordination in speech turn-taking. Synchronization of menstrual cycle of women has been reported in convents and prison, suggesting pheromones may play also a part on, on top of visual, auditory, and proprioceptive cues. And of course, language is a universal trait among humans, and it is generally admitted that it serves as a mean of communication between humans. In other words, we have hardware design that predisposes us to coordination with other humans. Recent findings in neuroscience show that we have a specific system called mirror neurons located in the premotor and parietal areas of the cortex, which fire the same whether we execute a movement ourselves or see it executed by others. So we have an inbuilt low-level system enabling us to link other people's movements as we see them to our own motor experience. 
This may explain why we learn so easily by imitation or why we can coordinate action so readily in groups. The research on, of, on mirror neurons may have a groundbreaking implication for psychology, philosophy, and science in general. I use the conditional because although the evidence is solid, there is still debate about what is the exact role of this mirror neuron system, and the first findings only date back to 1996. I hope I have convinced you at this stage that humans are by physiological design flesh for group making. Let's now look at groups. Henry Tashfell's experiments on the minimal group paradigm show that groups tend to build naturally as soon as humans are grouped. And then individuals tend to adopt a group identity and act in favor of their group and eventually against other groups. In this experiment, the subjects are randomly attributed to two groups. They're individually asked to distribute rewards to members of in-group and out-group, not necessarily equally. The purpose of the experiment, indeed, was to see how much the subject would distribute in different conditions to see if there is some in-group favoritism. And there is. Subjects awarded more points to members of their in-group, demonstrating strong in-group favoritism. Also, when the possible choices for reward were manipulated so that it was not in their best interest to show in-group favoritism, subjects generally opted to maximize the difference in favor of the in-group versus the out-group, rather than choosing a win-win situation. This last result is especially disturbing. It shows competition between groups occurs naturally, even without reason, without external incitation or leadership, through the spontaneous decision of individual group members. The effect is observed even in experiments when subjects are aware that groups are drawn at random. Once groups are constituted, they tend to create their own norms and cultures, as exemplified here with different colors of kilts. A growing differentiation starts, which feeds further the members' sense of distinctive identity. Grouping people together therefore spontaneously creates a kind of superorganism, the group, which starts displaying some sense of identity and desire for survival, a conatus, to use the term in Spinoza's sense of effort to survival. And this at the expense of other groups when there are resources to be shared, which is our problem. Within the groups, some division of labor occurs by distributing tasks on individuals. This leverages the group's efficiency as, coordinated, as a coordinated unit for perception and action, like in the army here. Let us see now how these superorganisms operate by using their individual, individual members as organs for perception and action. Muzaffar Sheriff studied social influence in perception. His autokinetic effect experiments are famous. In a totally dark room, a small dot of light is shown on a wall. After a time, the light appears to wander. This is a purely subjective effect, since the light is actually stationary. Seven and a half inches. Different people perceive different amounts of movement of the light. The first step in Sharif's experiment is to determine the average amount of movement that each subject perceives. One and a quarter inches. Four and a quarter inches. 
Then he brings the individuals together in a group, and they make new judgments in the presence of each other. Sharif found that there is a striking convergence of judgments in the course of the laboratory sessions. Five inches. Five inches. Five inches. This group norm is kept by participants when they are invited to estimate the movements of the dots, weeks later, alone. Members of each group have internalized their local group norm and changed their perception accordingly. This shows that the group norm is not followed because of coercion by the group and is active at perceptive level. If we consider the group as an entity, a superorganism, we notice that it has managed, using these three individual members as perception organs, to construct one single coherent perception of reality. This makes ecological sense. To act upon its environment, the group must construct a single image of reality, and the individual members should share it in order to act in coordinated ways. What I call the psychosocial pact, that what you see is what we see, is a necessary postulate to ground the very possibility of cooperation. It is at the basis of naive realism. I have empirical evidence that in natural situations, Individuals actually do not see or hear the same thing when in the same situation. But we humans overlook this fact and rather use the common construct and the psychosocial pact. Otherwise, life would be too complicated. It is sometimes more important to reach a consensus than to make the right decision. For example, when there is no clear evidence of what the problem and the solution are, but action must be taken anyway. Claude Fischler and myself studied a group of wine tasters making their opinion about a wine. Here again, the final result can be quite different from the participants' personal opinions in the beginning. I would not suggest here that committee work uh, follows a similar process, for example, for choosing between several candidates for a position, but it's always interesting to be aware of this phenomenon. Now, what happens if the stimulus is not ambiguous? Solomon Ashe's experiments provide food for thought. A group of eight individuals, one subject and seven confederates, sit in a room and verbally state which of three unequal lines match a given line. You have an example here. Two. Uh, two. The naive subject is seated so that he makes his verbal judgment last after the confederates. In certain cases, the confederates all agree on the wrong answer for example, here is obviously the right answer, but all the confederates answer too. What do the naive subjects do in this case? Two. 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 Uh, two. The subject denies the evidence of his own eyes and yields to group influence. While in a controlled condition, when alone, only one subject out of 35 give an incorrect answer. In the group situation, 75% of the participants give an incorrect answer at least once. As I say, as groups get more organized, they create norms and labor division emerges, which is institutionalized at individual level by roles and statuses. One can easily understand that the group can perform only if behavior of members is well-coordinated and predictable. So every member must play according to the rules of the game. We spend a considerable amount of time teaching children that they should behave according to the role which is attributed to them in the given framework of the situation. That everyone behaves according to the social framework 
is essential to the survival of society, as Irving Goffman showed. Not behaving according to rules and statuses creates a social problem and calls for reparation. It is in this perspective that I propose you to reconsider the classic Milgram experiment on obedience. This experiment was set to understand how infamous phenomena as the extermination of millions of Jews and other minorities in Nazi concentration camps could have happened. Adolf Eichmann, during his trial in Jerusalem, appeared as an, as an ordinary man obeying orders, or rather, playing with professionalism the role that he was assigned, organizing transport to the camps. I strongly recommend my students to read Hannah Arendt's book, The Banality of Evil, Eichmann in Jerusalem, describing the tribal, which is illuminating in this respect. In Milgram's experiment, the subject was instructed to teach word pairs to the learner. When the learner made a mistake, the subject was instructed to punish the learner by giving him an electric shock with a 15-volt increment for each new mistake. This was allegedly to do research on the impact of punishment and learning. There's a lot of them here, you know, they love our condition there. You want me to go? Just continue, please. Sh sharp. Axe, needle, stick, blade. That's what. Wrong. I'm up to 180 volts. Please continue, teacher. It's a needle. You're going to get a shock. 180 volts. They right. said before, the shocks may be painful, but yeah, they're not but dangerous. They're hollering. He can't stand it. What if something happens to him? The experiment requires that you continue, teacher. Yeah, but uh, I'm not going to get that man sick of that. I mean, he's hollering there. You know what I mean? I mean, he's Whether the learner likes it or not, we must go on until he's well, learned I mean, all the uh, words. Uh, I refuse to take the responsibility of getting hurt in there. You know, I'm not, I mean, he's under hollering. It's absolutely essential that you continue, teacher. There's too many left here, and I mean, geez, he, he gets wrong here. There's too many of them left. I mean, who's going to take the responsibility if anything happens to that gentleman? I'm responsible for anything that happens here. Continue, please. All right, next one. Slow. Walk, dance, truck, music. Answer, please. Wrong. 195 volts. Dance. Let me out of here. Let me out of here. Continue, please. Let me out of here. You have no right to keep me here. Well, I mean, I, you see, you're talking to Let me out. Let me out of here. I don't know. Well, the experiment requires... Well, I mean, I know it does, sir, but I mean, <laughs> you don't know what he's getting in for. He's up to 195 volts. Answer, please. subjects who were doing this also exhibited nervous slaughter like I heard in this audience, right? Um, 
In the most famous version of the experiment, 65% of subjects administered a maximum 450 volts, like this man here did, even though he was reluctant. I cannot describe all variants of this experiment, but they all produce similar results. This, this experiment is especially relevant if you consider obedience today in the corporation. As humans, we naturally tend to do what we are told, to play the role that was assigned to us by the social framework. In this case, the responsibility seems to be transferred to the superorganism, and the subject tends to act as a part of the organization playing his assigned role, rather than act as an autonomous individual. As Milgram says, the individual becomes integrated into a situation that carries its own momentum. Philip Zimbardo's prison experiment also shows how easily we get into the role. A group of 24 male students were randomly assigned to the role of prisoners or guards in a simulated prison in the Department of Psychology of Stanford University, also in 1972. They soon adopted their respective role to such a degree that Zimbardo had to stop the experiment six days after the beginning instead of the planned two weeks when the guards started to abuse the prisoners. There is an unpleasant similarity of some images from the Stanford experiment and images from the Abu Ghraib prison, but I decided not to show them. A similar experiment has been conducted recently by Haslam and Reicher with the BBC. You may have heard about it. These social psychology experiments have relevance for the general society. Nazi camps, the My Lai massacre by US troops in Vietnam on March 1968, or the Spanish Inquisition are sinister examples, but they're extreme. Still, the same phenomena of merciless role playing happens in most organizations with less spectacular violence, although on a daily basis, and causes much pain. So does discrimination, which remains ubiquitous. I hope that I have shown you at this point that the power of group to influence individual behavior is huge. As we saw in the beginning, this power is based on the very physiological design of human beings as social animals, which provides solid infrastructure for group communication and influence. To sum up this part, I have shown that humans are by design prone to assemble and to create social groups. These superorganisms automatically emerge as soon as humans are grouped. Individuals then tend to act as group organs and to behave according to the role the group gives them. The influence of the group on the individual is massive, coercive, and persistent. Obviously, it is a powerful lever to change individual behavior. These social phenomena have positive influence for emulation and collaboration, but also, as we saw, they may have dangerous effects. Individuals in such socially framed settings become alienated to the superorganism and they will tend to play their social role no matter what. A first point I wish to make at this stage is the following. Please note that we tend to build our organizations on the basis of groups. For example, corporations, villages, governments are all based on a set of people who stay together as a group within rather close boundaries. These corporations, villages, etc., use rituals and other processes to enhance the group identity of members. This because they capitalize on the alienation of the members to the group, uh, to the group and obtain effects of involvement, dedication, and abandon of self-interest, which are sources of agency and coordination for the group. Human resources departments in organizations are partly dedicated to this business. Group dynamics are a powerful way to change individual behavior. We can indeed use group dynamics for change. 
And this was what social psychologist Kurt Lewin was the first to do in a deliberate way in his famous experiments to change the Americans' eating behavior in 1943. We owe Kurt Lewin the basic principle of defreeze, change, refreeze process used in action research for change management. Such psychosocial mechanisms are deliberately used in many organizations to implement change. But many groups tend to lose focus of their initial functions and goal. The organized group spends more and more resources for the continuation of the organization per se. For example, corporations created to make cars or provide food tend to become consortiums focused on the survival and growth of the, of the organization per se, competing against other superorganisms. This is one of the reasons why our economic system is continuously seeking growth. And when one thinks of it, this may not be a desirable effect. I suggest today that we must look for alternatives to the primitive group structure when designing organizations, decision-making, and other structures of agency. Alternatives which do not threaten all the negative aspects of group identity and survival. For example, it seems that networks, transient goal-oriented project working parties, subsidiarity, consensus conferences involving stakeholders in a transverse and transient way, or distributed grassroots initiatives are avenues for new organizational designs. These seem promising for solving the first problem I highlighted in my introduction, social identity, which is an obstacle to more sustainable and less conflict-prone types of governance for human affairs. This is a social-political research program in itself. At the Institute of Social Psychology at LSE, we intend to work in this direction and hope that many will join us, join us in this effort. Now comes the third part. How do societies and groups control and change individual behaviors in the world today? How can we use the same mechanisms to operate deliberate changes on behavior? Groups continue to influence individual behavior, but they are now highly evolved forms of superorganisms Human colonies are now much more than small tribes of naked humans. They are complex socio-technical systems. Humans live in cities, work in organizations, watch TV, and socialize on the internet. The basic human bricks are the same, and the human brain has not changed in the last 50,000 years, at least. But superorganisms have evolved and developed sophisticated infrastructure. They have become societies. This is why we talk about societal psychology. Societies have accumulated a wealth of artifacts, which we call culture, objects, thought representations, institutions. These artifacts are mediating structures, a term coined by Ed Hutchins, structures through which the colonies elicit, guide, monitor, and control individual behavior. Such mediating structures have considerably added to the primitive mechanisms of social influence by which groups shape individual behavior. I shall now present a general model, world installation theory, which describes how societies shape and control individual behavior. I shall illustrate with example how we can also use this model to implement change deliberately. In human colonies, the determinants of human behavior are distributed. They lay in the subject, but also in the context. Motives, goals, preferences, habits, but also artifacts, 
rules other people in an operational perspective. For practitioners who want to understand, predict, or influence human behavior, the world can be considered as an installation. Installation must be understood here in the artistic sense of assembling patterns in space to modify the way we experience a situation. To paraphrase Milgram, the installation carries its own momentum. The installation of the world guides subjects into their activity track at three levels, physical, psychological, and social. Let me detail these three levels. The physical level refers to the material reality of objects. It provides what Gibson calls affordances for activity, that is, which activities can be supported by the objects. For example, chairs afford sitting, buses afford transportation. One can only do what is afforded by the present environment. This layer of installation is distributed in the physical environment by construction of infrastructure and various mechanisms of supply and procurement for example, by the market. This first physical level of determination affords a tree of possible behavior, but not everything that is possible will be realized. For example, I could be standing on this chair, but I'm not. This is where psychology comes into play. To take action, subjects must interpret situations. At psychological level, motives, representations, and practice provide possible interpretations of the situation by the subject. For example, choosing between various artifacts which all provide similar affordances for the desired activity like different brands of the same product. Representations include the how to use the object. For example, um, well, how to use a web browser, a babysitter, or a self-service restaurant. This layer of installation is distributed over individual human minds right? By the means of experience, education, and exposure to discourse like media, advertising, etc. Social representations, a theory introduced by social psychologist Serge Moscovici, deals with these constructs. But again, not everything that is both possible and desired will be realized. A third level of determination, social, will cut off more branches from the tree of possibilities. For example, although we could drive on any side of the roads, only one is allowed in every country. And as you know, it's not always the same. Because individual actions produce externalities, they are limited by others. Institutions are a social solution to control potential abuse or misuse of the installation and to minimize social costs, also called negative externalities. Institutions set common conventions with, which enable cooperation, like all people should drive on the same side of the road, etc. But many of the, the rules already contained in the normative aspects of representations are enforced by institutions because institutions have a capacity to enforce behavior by social pressure or more direct means. So at a given moment, individual behavior is determined by the distributed installation. Objects installed in the physical environment, interpretive systems installed in humans, and institutions installed in society. This clarifies the role of social psychology in this framework, because some behavior, some determinants lay in the context. Psychological theories alone cannot explain or predict behavior. 
But because some determinants are psychological and social, a social-psychological approach is necessary. Installation theory is, of course, very schematic. It is deliberately so to enable a first orientation in the complex socio-technical systems which innovators must deal with. It provides a simple checklist for analysis and agenda for action. If we want to change the world, or more modestly one of its subdomains, it is clear that no action limited to a single layer of determination, for example a new product or a campaign, will be enough to change the behaviors of people. We should make sure the appropriate installation is in the three layers, physical environment, individuals concerned, relevant institutions, has been addressed. What is left to us is a strategy of how to create and distribute such installation. For example, we could start by the physical layer in procuring products and then try to recruit some institutions so they take over the educative part of the installation. Evolution of human social technical system is a chicken and egg problem. Representations and objects follow a co-evolution process. Representations are constructed by practice people have of objects. Conversely, objects are made after the pattern of their representation. Cars are made to look like cars. Receptionists are trained to behave as receptionists. This is, why the, this is the reason why representations match with objects. This co-evolution between artifacts and representations is done under monitoring and control of stakeholder communities which use institutions as social and economic instruments to safeguard their interests. Institutions reflect the rapport de force between stakeholders. The more developed the society, the more institutions, the more complex the relations between the three layers. This is why change is gradual and often takes the pattern of a leopard skin, going faster where local conditions are easier and gradually spreading as global institutions join the process. Let me illustrate how we can use the various levels of installation to change behavior. Let me show you an application in industry which illustrates how we can implement change on a continuous basis in real-world organizations. This is called experimental reality. So, when we want to change the world, we must address the three layers, right? But, as I said, this is a, head and egg, a chicken and egg problem. Coordination of the three layers. This raises the issue of timing and socially framing this evolution. How can we do this? Real-world situations are complex, so complex that they defy complete modeling. So we shall operate on a realistic small microcosm of the system to change. For example, try to make one new behavior feasible. In doing so, we, may, we will understand what must be changed in the different layers, physical, social, mental, to make this new behavior durable. If we manage to make a good solution in this microcosm, one that seems durable, we can extend it to the whole system. This is what we call experimental reality. In practice, we make controlled but realistic experiments involving stakeholders and real users at small scale. The first full-scale application was the Laboratory of Design for Cognition, a lab I founded in 2000 at TDF to implement new ways of working using information and communication technologies. Better comfort and efficiency and also more sustainability were the goals. Among other things, this experiment enabled developing distributed collaborative work 
which can reduce transportation needs, which is good for people as well as for the environment. The lab is a four, whole 4,000 square feet building designed like a cinema studio. And uh, it has an infrastructure which is completely flexible and organized for continuous observation. The building is equipped with 30 time-lapse time video cameras in the ceiling which operate on a continuous basis. There are many recording equipments of all kinds, including subcams and even physiological monitoring. The lab contains futuristic offices where real workers did their normal job under continuous observation. A team of 25 volunteer workers participated in the process. Collectively, with the help of designers and psychologists, they created new work environments, new practices, and new rules. The experiment lasted three years. The fact of being observed was compensated by the fact they lived in a very comfortable and pure futuristic environment with almost unlimited credits for fancy IT equipment. The lab was still part of the larger organization as workers did the noble job, which enabled exploring the compatibility of the local solutions with the larger system and therefore stop what, spot, sorry, what the problems of deployment would be. This lab enabled testing and creating installation for several innovations which were later deployed in the company. Uh, among these were wireless networks, mobile workstations, VPN tunneling, IP video conferencing, and the use of RFID tags, which were at the time in 2000 uh, groundbreaking innovations. I would love to go in more detail, but time is lacking, and I recommend those interested to read the book Springer is releasing this week called Designing User-Friendly of Metal Environment, which Sarah kindly made some publicity for. Implementation of these innovations in the company will not save the world by themselves, for sure. But remember, saving the world will be the result of many local efforts. For example, measures on the use of the main video conference room of this lab prove that not only does it save time and efforts to users, but also that it saved about 9 tons of CO2 per month and also over 40,000 euros per month in transport costs. It also enabled to reduce by half the delay to find a proper date for meetings, since it's easier to find one hour time slot than the half day needed if you have to do some transport. One interesting takeaway of our experiments is that administrative issues in the institutional layer are usually more of a problem to redesign than the technical aspects. In fact, the physical layer is easier to change and the two others less. Starting change with the physical layer focuses the discussions on technical aspects, tends to limit intergroup conflicts, and produces the difference that sparks change. I shall focus on one detailed example for demonstration purposes because we have little time. Let's look at this office. In this office were two engineers. The top images show the floor plan of the office before and after refurbishing. Discussions with the users led us to construct new furniture that would enable them to have a better use of space, especially for dealing with the piles of documents on their desktop. We led the offices under observation during one month to establish a baseline, then we constructed the new furniture, and the installation was done under full control of the users. During all this time, and during nine months in total, a video camera was recording to enable further analysis by automated movement recognition. 
There's the new setting. So automatic analysis of movements was made and activity maps were traced, showing where movements did take place in the office. I think we'll see uh, on, the, on this part of the screen, this is how the maps are traced. And finally, we have the activity maps here down there, right? This is the activity map of before, and this is the activity map of after. And obviously, it's quite different. Here you see that the subject works alone most of the time. This is even his mouse pad, right? Like this. Okay? That's the screen. This is an artifact. That's the curtains moving over the air conditioning. That's people trying to get in, but as you can see, there's not much space, right? The situation afterwards is quite different. Occupants spontaneously started to work collaboratively with engineers from other offices. Visitors do not simply stand on the doorstep as they used to do before. They come in and sit for discussion in front of screen. This is why we have such a wide space of activity here. During a presentation of these results, the managers of this group expressed surprise. They had tried for years to obtain this result, this result collaboration, but never succeeded and had attributed the failure of their managerial efforts to the fact that these engineers were hard-headed. Interestingly, this collaborative behavior had occurred simultaneously after our office refurbishing, simply because the new office setting offered good affordances for collaboration, a large enough space for two or three seats facing a good display. This affordance was not planned by us. We were looking at the movements of documents you know, on the desktops, but it worked anyway. The new behavior, documented two months after installation of the new setting, remained stable. This result may seem rather trivial, but this reminds us that the first move to foster change is to address the physical affordance for the new behavior. We can also change the behaviors by acting on the institutional layer, and one way for this is to change the rules. We can also act by changing representations. I shall not insist in detail today on these two levels because as social scientists, we are aware of them. In fact, they are the usual avenues for social policies, conducting education and press campaigns, creating laws and specialized institutions. But this must be supported by changes in the built environment to be really effective. So how can we do in practice? In order to create a sustainable change, the new installation must guide and support the activity of the subject at every stage of activity. We review carefully the activity and at which points of activity there are obstacles or support is lacking from the user's perspective by following the user as she performs the activity. We have applied this approach to introduce change in the workplace by using a specific device to follow the behavior from the subject's perspective, the subcam. The subcam is a miniature video camera worn at eye level by the users. It records what the, user, the subject sees, hears, and does, and enables to observe very minute details and obstacles. By asking the subject to wear the subcam, we can follow her activity trajectory in the installation of the, in the, installation of the world and evidence the various layers of the determinants of behavior in actual situation as they occur at every second. As an outside observer, you can wonder why the subject stops typing and dials a number on her phone. But when you see inside her visual field from the perspective provided by the subcam, you see that she has slightly turned her head to the left, 
while drinking her coffee. Hence a post-it note with a telephone number and a name comes into the center of her visual field and catches her attention. Subjects in offices are not constantly sitting at their desks, they are very mobile. The subcam provides a dynamic representation of subcammer's office life. In this clip, the subcammer goes from the coffee machine to his office and notices, while crossing an office on his right, a man to whom he must talk. He therefore changes his path and goes to talk to him. Video analysis is mostly qualitative. We make a content log of each tape and choose relevant situations. We edit clips to discuss with subjects during debriefing sessions. We then analyze the tape at a finer grained level. Results of these analysis give directions as to where and how change should be implemented in, in the installation in order to support the subject in adopting the new behavior. The most blocking layers must be addressed first to unlock the system. But this, but this must be done gradually and with care. Why? When we analyze an activity trajectory in the world, say for example the way procurement is done in an organization, it soon appears that this trajectory is non-optimal. This is usually because there are too many obstacles in the way of this specific activity and therefore we are tempted to introduce changes for example, new devices and new regulations. This may make the activity simpler. In our case, if we set up a new procurement system that is compulsory and controlled by the procurement department and some nice accounting-based enterprise resource planning, things will become easy for the procurement department. But the world is a collective installation. And what is an obstacle for one process is often there because of some other process. A change of the installation in some place may well hamper other activities which use the same installation for other purposes. In our example, the new procurement system may become a nightmare for operational services outside the procurement department. Therefore, we must negotiate ways of implementing change that take into account this collective property of the installation and involve all stakeholders into this process in order to avoid negative externalities. Otherwise, these will produce resistance to change, and these resistances are legitimate. Involving stakeholders, if done carefully, can enable positive group effect in defreezing the situation and introducing change. As we can see, although changing the installation may have seemed first a daunting task, it is feasible in practice, provided we start small and operate gradually with the help of stakeholders. Let me now conclude. In introduction, I reminded you the need to find urgently new ways of changing and controlling human behavior in a world that will otherwise go straight into major trouble. We need to change individual behavior and beware of group identity. Group dynamics is both an obstacle to rational change because of group identities and a powerful leverage for change. I have shown how the social psychological mechanisms which ground it are embedded deeply in human physiology and human mind. 
I proposed a unifying interpretation of a series of classic social psychological experiments, which suggest that we should seriously take the idea that superorganisms made of human groups, of grouped humans, have their own conatus and use individual humans as organs for their own purpose. I have shown some unpleasant consequences of this phenomenon in the real world. This is in itself a research program which my colleagues at the ISP have already started to explore. I have suggested that we should consider alternative social designs for human organizations, especially networks or transient working parties since these tend to produce less group identity and alienation. In the second part, I have addressed the awareness action gap issue by proposing a simplified model listing the three major layers of determination and control of human behavior as it has emerged in human colonies. This model, World Installation Theory, considers that the mediating structures guiding and controlling behavior are distributed in the physical environment, in social institutions, and in the individuals themselves. The implication of this model is that when we want to implement change, we should address these three layers and not only one of them. I have provided examples of how this can be done in complex organizations such as the modern corporation in such a way that even continuous change can be monitored. I showed you how to operate in practice by following the activity from the subject's perspective to find what can be improved and then negotiating with stakeholders the new installation. So there are operational pathways to change behavior and to do it with the people themselves. Dear colleagues, thank you again for your attention and your patience. I'm going to put this one back. Okay, Sadi, that was right. absolutely brilliant. Can you hear me? Good. Um, I don't really know where to start. I'm thinking, now I understand a bit more why the new academic building made such a difference. And I'm also thinking I'm on an appointments committee next month. And perhaps I need some advice on getting the group to decide in a particular way. But you've probably got lots of questions, and uh, we probably take 20 minutes or less. Uh, if people are in a hurry to leave, can you do so quietly? But questions at the front, well, in the bottom first, and then I'll move up to the back. In groups of three, say, and there are roving microphones. If you could say who you are, uh, and then make your question short so that we can fit as many in as possible. Any questions? No? <laughs> Questions at the top? Okay, we'll start at the top. In the middle, uh, second row. Thank you very much. It's Barry Rogers here from the Institute. Um, I guess a, a lot of us, when we, we look at this from a social science perspective, are very aware that the whole idea of physical space is an area that within social science, not just within social psychology, is, uh, is something that has been quite a lot neglected. So for me, this is quite an eye-opener in terms of it being essential to your model. Um, any comments in terms of the interface between these three areas? 
between these three layers? Because I, I would think in practice you have quite some issues in terms of, of where you start the process out. Uh, uh, thanks. Uh, I didn't have the time to discuss that at length, but um, as you can see, there are many ways of uh, using the three layers as, as they overlap, right? So uh, you can choose, for example, to control through representations or through the institution or through the physical layer, more or less. Now, let me tell you about something that Terry Winograd says about installing uh, environments in ICT. He talks about something which is the semantic Rubicon, right? The idea is what part should be under the responsibility of the system to do something, the computer system, and what should be on the behalf of the user, right? And this is exactly the same uh, problem for the three layers. Depending on how you bring in the control, you leave more or less freedom to the user. Think, for example, if you have a procurement system that obliges you to fill every little um, cell in it, um, you will be forced into one specific activity with absolutely no freedom. For example, you will not be able to um, finish entering the thing in, in, in the system. But if you let the system more open and leave some agency or capacity of decision to the user, right? like leaving some open-ended open questions, well then it's much more comfortable for the user. It is very difficult to say from the beginning which layer you will use. This is why we have to test with real people to see what's actually acceptable and, and provides good experience for the users. Right? It's the same problem with democracy. I mean, how, how much should we fix in the legal system and how much should be left just to custom and culture? And depending on what solution you use and you choose, living will be more or less comfortable in society. Um, towards the middle, further back. Uh, could you give us some idea of how you would use installation theory uh, to deal with the bankers and the subprime market? <laughs> Well, this is something I didn't have the time to address. There's a phenomenon called groupthink, described by Janice, uh, which means that groups that are too close start having uh, discussions in which uh, there is no possibility of saying something different than the rest of the group. And one of those solutions, there are many, right, uh, things that are advocated to fight against groupthink, is uh, to enable the voices of the dissent to be heard, right? and uh, also to uh, make that these groups are not so closed. So I would advertise that there is some mixing you know, uh, of this banking uh, subculture with people who are stakeholders, right? For example, in the boards of banks or uh, with the unions. I mean, there are lots of possible ways of doing governance which uh, prevent people from going into what is a world only self-constructed and completely uh, drifting from reality. So that would be more at institutional level, I would say. Someone else? Oh, we're getting some at the bottom now. <laughs> the group dynamic. Chris Tennant. Um, 
given that Henri Tajfel showed that even minimal characteristics can create a group, I was wondering if you felt you were perhaps optimistic in hoping that a distributed social network would neutralize that uh, impetus. Well, um, my feeling is that uh, when you're in a network, your identity is only partially invested in that network because you're in many things at the same time. We don't belong to one single group. So uh, the solution, and we had a, a discussion, and we heard Wilhelm Doaz uh, uh, discussing precisely these experiments by, by Cashfell. If you have multiple group belongings and, and multiple conflicts between groups, in fact, this brings some sort of equilibrium uh, between the potential conflicts that would be against one group against another. If you're in many groups at the same time, society becomes much more complicated and, and you're sort of held back uh, by your other identities and your other roles uh, and prevented from doing things which are really too simplistically conflictual. Sadi, enjoyed your lecture. Thank you very much. I wondered if you could reflect a little bit more on the nature of institutions and the power of institutions, because it seems to me that taking your example of uh, groupthink, as institutions gain power, they gain stronger belief in themselves, and in their appointments process, and this has fundamental implications for succession planning in organizations, they tend to recruit in their likeness and they don't recruit those with different ways of thinking. So the, the rebels are not promoted, mm -hmm. they're excluded, they're driven out, so the success of an institution ca carries its own seeds of failure. Absolutely. So, so for example, the LSE, successful institution, carries within it now conformity, which contains the, its seeds of failure. How do you deal with that in institutions? If, if I had the solution, I'd be happy, but uh, uh, one, one possible avenue for um, uh, dealing with this issue is to make things more transient, which is what we do actually in democracies and, and at LSE also. I mean, people should not be in committees for too long. Another thing is, uh, well, even though the group effects I mean, are more strong than individual effects, as, as we know, some people are more prone to get into some, some kind of a group thing. And uh, maybe we should promote individuals who don't really wish to have uh, this kind of power. And then they're possible. I mean, we can be creative about this. But the general idea is, is to maintain a very diverse ecology of decision making in, 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 the, in the organization. And this can be framed within the institution, especially if it's framed at the beginning, you know, when, when these things are still in the making and it's still possible to do this because you will not find parties trying to hold their own territory. So in building by design inside institutions some kind of a, a distributed governance, voice for dissent, capacity of expression, public discussion, uh, probably is a small limitation to this, this problem. But it's a very difficult problem. And then even in democracies we see that it has not been solved. Thank you very much for the lecture, Sophia. I enjoyed it very much. If I could just ask you to 
reflect on something that perhaps you didn't explore directly, but I think is very much related to what you uh, brought to us tonight. Uh, you very powerfully describe the power of groups, the force of groups to frame us and to make us into what we are. There is, of course, a problem with that, that we all have experienced. You demonstrated, you mentioned the historical uh, devastation that that power has caused. I wanted to ask you about the space of the individual in your model. How is it possible for individuals to escape the power of groups? You didn't mention the classical experiments on rebellion, for instance, and the capacity that sometimes even minorities of one have Absolutely. to challenge the group think of the day or the institutional power of the day and make things into a different way and make things into a different life. I wonder if you could comment a bit on that. I'd, I'd like to comment on this, but this, this is going to take far because that's a deep question. My feeling is that um, there is a problem of defining what is the very reality where organisms or beings do uh, live. So. Uh, individuals have the power of changing or, or, or the power of rebellion and they do that when they are very consistent in doing so so that they present some version of reality that is more stable or as stable as something uh, that the group presents and it, it really makes sense even at group level like if you have uh, a lot of statistical points right and you have just one that seems to be strange well, you just say this is a wrong data and you ignore it. Right? Now, if you have a consistent series of points that you just cannot erase and keep on coming in your system, that you, you'll address it because you think there may be something there. So even if we stay in this framework of groups, there are indeed ways of changing the group situation by presenting an alternative reality that the group may think is interesting. And in fact, you will see that a lot of groups try to keep organizations have that troubleshooters or trouble no, not even whistleblowers no no that people who are paid to sort of innovate and keep the, 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 the company challenged in a way right so they have understood this ecological thing now to answer on another level I mean there is agency at individual level and there is agency at small group and there is agency at, at, at societal level if you look at, at the human beings i'm behaving now and you're thinking well this is sadilalu speaking but actually i'm doing a lot of other things on other levels i'm digesting i'm breathing you know the small cells are actually still doing things it's a matter of level of analysis and, and at some point, if, if there is something that really works strong somewhere, maybe I'll have to leave this place and you see what I mean. But, um, uh, so there is indeed agency at various levels. And for some phenomena, it's more visible at, at individual levels. And if they're strong enough, they might influence the other levels. But there is agency, yes. And, and for example, this is what Haslam and Reicher did in their remake of, of the Zimbardo experiment of the prison. They tried to see how far you know, individuals could modify that process, and they were partly successful in this, although they had to stop the experiment after eight days or so. But, uh... Thank you. Uh, George Stowell, architect. 
I'm very interested in your the relative values that you assign to uh, institutional, I call it institutional space or presence, uh, and the, uh, the, the the mental space and the physical space. I mean, how do you go about understanding the relative values of these in change? Because you presented some options to us in terms of workplace. Well, to me, that's pretty standard, you know, understanding for my in my world. Um, but how do you start addressing the relative value of those three, um, just to call them assets, for example, um, when you're um, uh, in, when you're trying to create change in, 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 in any environment, whether it's an urban environment or a workplace or home? Well, first, I wish that it was standard practice because that is not completely my experience for changes in the workplace. I mean, this is what, what is said, but it's not always what is done in practice, precisely because it's very difficult. You start with great ideas in architecture, and in the end, it, it finishes you know, with some open spaces and, and you know, closed offices. You know the problem. But um, my feeling is that uh, there is no general answer to this. We, have, we must know that we have this palette. What, what I would do is systematically consider the three layers and see what is the easiest way to proceed at one moment. There was a very interesting study at the way uh, wind energy was introduced in Germany. Right? And you see that there are some political windows for doing some things at regulatory level, and then there are some other windows when you can use the social movement. And then there are other you know, industrial windows when you can push forward and you can help this with subsidies. So it's a matter of not being systematic and sort of always consider what's the current state of things and where you can have the best uh, cost efficiency ratio in, in a way. So it's not a, there is no general solution, but at every moment, there is always one way which is more easy or less costly to address than the others, and that, that's the way I would proceed, sort of very opportunistic, in a way, uh, manner of, of doing. Well, thank you, Sadi. Uh, I was quite surprised by that last comment. I thought the English had a reputation for being pragmatic and the French for being very theoretical and um, taking the principled approach. But it's been an absolutely magnificent inaugural lecture. I think it's been that, that perfect touch of a demonstration of complete mastery of a discipline and also engaging enough to an audience who is outside the discipline. So I think makers all want to be a little bit more inside it. So thank you very much. It's been terrific.